We were blessed years ago as a ministry when God brought Tim Christensen to Lancaster Baptist Church with his family. And God used Brother Tim here in a wonderful way on our staff as an assistant pastor. And uh, his ministry lives on today. And his fingerprint is on this ministry in many, many ways as he was involved in a variety of things as he served here at Lancaster Baptist Church. It was, um, I don't know if difficult's the right word, but it was uh, sad, to say the least, when God led Brother Christensen away. Uh, but now, looking back after three years, we certainly see the hand of God in that. And while we miss him here, uh, God led him to Howell, Michigan, a, a, a town that has been the fastest growing town in Michigan for 40 straight years. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And a town that is situated uh, almost centrally between Michigan State University and the University of Michigan. A town that is situated between uh, many different types of corporations and businesses. And uh, God has uniquely placed the Bible Baptist Church there. And it's a church that has a wonderful testimony, uh, has been there for a while. It's an established church. It's a church that knocks on doors, the only church in town that does, in a very fast-growing community. And uh, yet God is using Brother Christensen there as their pastor to lead them uh, in, the, in the future uh, ministries that that church will enjoy as God brings much of a population to them in the state of Michigan. It's sure a delight, it's sure a blessing to welcome him back for chapel. And uh, I think of these phases we've gone through with you, Brother Christensen. See you come, see you go, see you come back. And this is an exciting day to have you back. And I know students that remember you, there are a few that have been here like six or seven years uh, that, uh, that remember your ministry. I'm kidding. Some of the seniors certainly remember you. And we're glad you're back. Let's welcome Pastor Christensen as he comes to preach for us this morning. Well, I guess midterms are about done. That's something to clap about right there, right? Yeah, that's a blessing. That's a, rejoice. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful you're where you're at doing what you're doing. You can uh, take a minute and find Mark chapter 9. And uh, we're going to read a number of verses from Mark chapter 9 in the middle of the chapter. And uh, we'll get into that message in just a couple minutes. This is uh, certainly like home for me. Uh, my wife and I were both born and raised in Michigan. How many folks do we have from Michigan here today? Yeah. Go blue? We have any go green fans in here? Uh, this week is rivalry week there. Uh, Michigan State University and University of Michigan uh, are, um, are playing each other on Saturday, and we hope that our church does not split over it. Um, we, have, uh, we have about half and half fans, and uh, we're rooting for our, our teams, and it'll be a good weekend, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, if you're from Michigan, hold up your hand. And make sure it's orientated right. And uh, show us where you're from, Michigan. Who do we, show us where you're from on your hand. Howell's right here. It's our county that's the fastest growing county. I didn't want any of you fact checkers to uh, say that we lied about our city. It's, it, our city's not necessarily the fastest growing city, but our county is the fastest growing county in Michigan. And we're blessed to be there. Who's from Ohio here? Amen. All right, show us where you're from right in here. Uh, oh, just kidding. I'm kidding there. Um, I didn't mean to do it just like that, but... Um, Michigan State is not the biggest rival Michigan has, and uh, we have another rival somewhere else. So, uh, Mark chapter 9, uh, before we get to the passage, let me just say how humbled and thankful I am to be able to preach in your chapel today. Uh, I am so, so, so thankful for uh, this ministry and for the people that lead this ministry. Pastor Chapel has been the greatest mentor in my life personally. Uh, I was 21 when my wife and I moved here. We had been married for two weeks. We were both raised in Michigan. We went to college in Tennessee. We got here, I was 21, she was 20, and we had everything figured out about uh, marriage and parenting and ministry. We'd been married for one week. Uh, and uh, uh, life, we'd been in the ministry exactly zero days. But we got here, and uh, it, was, um, it was groundbreaking Sunday on this auditorium. It was uh, July 14th, I think it was, 1997. And uh, the main auditorium was the, the North Auditorium. And the North Auditorium was really the only permanent building, North Auditorium and Gibbs Hall. Uh, were the only two permanent buildings on the, on the campus. Everything else was modulars. And uh, this building we got to see constructed in our first couple years here. And then uh, we got to stay. Our, our la my last day 
on campus as a member of the staff here was the first home game in the Walther Center. And uh, that was three years ago next month. And I'm just thankful for what God allowed us to be a part of. We did a lot of growing up here, uh, a lot of uh, spiritual growth, a lot of ministry growth experiences. And uh, three years ago, the Lord led us to Michigan, as Dr. Getch said. And we're grateful to be there uh, and grateful for the fruit that we've seen since we've been there. But uh, we, we are so deeply, deeply grateful. And I was so grateful for all those years to be a part of what God was doing here week in and week out in both the church and the college. And, and yet still today, I'm deeply grateful for what's still happening here, even though I'm a fan from a distance. And uh, I'm thankful. Mark chapter number 9, verse number 30. We'll read down through verse number 41. This is a moment in the life of our Lord and his disciples where he needed to deal with something in them. He was preparing them to carry the gospel to the corners of the earth upon his uh, death, resurrection, and ascension, and they weren't ready. And I hope that God does something in your heart and life today with respect to preparing you for the ministry he has for you. I want you to see yourself in the disciples' shoes as I see myself in the disciples' shoes this morning. And I want you to consider Jesus' uh, words to them. And I want you to consider those, his words to you today as well. And I hope it will prepare you for what God has you to do, which no doubt is to uh, carry the gospel uh, to the, the corners of the earth. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. This is not the first time Jesus mentioned his coming appointment with the cross of Calvary. They shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What is it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth us not. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. And whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. I want you to see this morning how that the Lord Jesus dealt with the disciples' pride and how he needs to deal with my pride and your pride as well this morning. And I pray that he will. Let's pray together and then we can be seated. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness and patience with us. You've been so patient with me and with us as you were with these disciples so that when we need confrontation and correction and <clears throat> mentoring, you provide it from your word and by your spirit, and sometimes from other people, by your grace. I pray that this would be one of those grace moments for all of us where we become more useful to you, more prepared for the good works and for the great commission work that you have for us as a result of uh, having looked into your word and seen this scene between you and your disciples today. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when we come to chapter 9, verse 30, Jesus' ministry is now more over than it has ahead of it with respect to that three and a half years of earthly ministry. Most of the miracles and the teaching to the crowds is behind them. Uh, the parables and so forth. Uh, Jesus is preparing for Calvary. They're days or weeks away from the Passion Week when he would enter Jerusalem and uh, when he would give his life on the cross of Calvary and then be raised from the grave on the third day. <clears throat> he had been transfigured before Peter, James, and John just in the preceding verses here. And then he had healed the demon-possessed, delivered the demon-possessed boy whose father brought him to him. 
And he was preparing these disciples like he's preparing you. And I trust and hope he's preparing me for greater ministry. They, like us, thought they had most things figured out and thought they had the answers they needed. Peter, of course, often would speak up for the group and tell Jesus how things should be. And it just shows our nature that we sometimes think we're more prepared than we are. We think we know more than we do. We think we're more ready than we are. We think we're more useful. And the fact is that all of us need the, the constant enabling grace and instructing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage is one of those moments in their lives and in ours. The fact is pride comes natural to us. <clears throat> and humility, the opposite of pride, doesn't come natural to us. And so God uniquely uses people who possess humility and he uniquely resists people who possess pride. So we have a problem because the pride comes natural and that's what causes God to resist us, 1 Peter 5, 5. And the humility doesn't come natural. And that's what really invites God to use us, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Peter chapter 5. Micah, the prophet, said, what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. And sometimes we miss this one requirement from the prophet because of pride. <clears throat> sometimes we try to analyze where are we on this spectrum between humility and pride. And I think every day of my life I'm sliding back and forth on this spectrum between being filled with pride and self and being properly oriented toward the Spirit's work in my life and uh, a proper self-awareness and self-assessment with respect to the, the, the humble position that needs to be there as a, uh, a child of God and an object of the grace of God. But one of the unique things about pride is we can't even really assess where we're at on that spectrum correctly because of our pride. It's this catch-22 that we live with as believers, and we should assume we have a problem because it's so hard to detect that the problem would be there. Usually pride is revealed when either I'm criticized and, and how I want to respond or tend to respond reveals that I have a pride problem. And I'll just go ahead and be the first to admit publicly this morning that I've dealt with pride maybe more than most other sins in my adult life and in my college years. I, I, I do think uh, that I've had moments where I wished I could go back, and I have gone back in some cases to people and say, I, I'm really... I want to ask you to forgive me for the, the pride that I demonstrated during those college years. And, and I've had to ask people for forgiveness for pride since then, too. But I think that this is something that I can speak about because I've dealt with it. And Jesus has needed to do a work of grace in my life and still does, even today. And when I'm confronted or corrected, sometimes that pride comes to the surface. And maybe, that's, maybe you can identify with that. When trials come, that tendency that we have to say, well, I don't deserve this or I deserve better, that, that is usually uh, the pride showing itself. When I'm treated unfairly, when I'm rejected, when I don't get the opportunity I thought I should have gotten or would have gotten, when I'm disregarded, ignored or slighted, these are moments when my pride shows, and yours might too. The disciples battled pride, so that's encouraging. The Lord used them to turn the world upside down, and they needed to have their pride dealt with on this occasion. The Lord hates six things, seven are abomination, Proverbs 6, and the first one is a proud look. Pride is this swollen of swelling of self in our lives that affects how we deal with others. And so we have to examine our lives today in light of what the interaction was between the disciples and Jesus, and we need to root this out. We need to do battle with this issue of pride because it threatens our relationship with God, it threatens our relationship with others, and it threatens our usefulness to the Great Commission and to advancing God's glory on the earth, as is our life's work. So there are four problems with pride that I see in this passage. Four problems with pride as revealed in this interaction. The first problem was and is that pride disregards Christ. Pride disregards Jesus Christ. In this passage, Jesus has very clearly said, he's not speaking in code or in deeply symbolic terms. He says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of sinners. He says 
he, he is delivered. In other words, it's a present tense. This is already in motion. We know that Jesus' appointment with Calvary didn't just happen by circumstance or chance. This was something where he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And this appointment with the cross was something that even though it surprised the disciples, they couldn't understand from their hearts and minds. Jesus was marching toward that ever since his incarnation began and before that in the economy and eternal existence of he and the Father. He says it, he is delivered. It's, it's happening. The wheels are turning. The plan is unfolding. And they will kill him. And after he's killed, he shall rise. But by, by, uh, verse 32 says they did not understand. They, they just couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And, and to me, I say, well, it wasn't hard to understand. But they couldn't get their minds and hearts around. And I think if I were in their situation, I would have had difficulty understanding why in the world he was saying this and what he must have meant by it. Because surely... He had already demonstrated his great authority and power of influence over the scribes and Pharisees, who were the ones who everybody knew wanted to kill him. So certainly, he had the upper hand against them. And, and they knew that he had talked about a coming kingdom, and you can't have a coming kingdom, in their minds at least, if you're going to be killed. And so they couldn't get their minds around this. And they knew that he had the power to raise the dead. He, they'd seen him do it, but if he were dead, who would raise him? So they were afraid, verse 32, to ask. And verse 32, they did not understand. It's interesting. Even though they had left all to follow Jesus, their hearts were still filled with distracting, self-centered, self-serving tendencies that tend to fill sometimes my heart. They were afraid to ask him about his death and resurrection, but they weren't afraid to talk about each other's positions in his coming kingdom. Jesus was the ultimate example of humility from whom they could have learned. He would wash their feet days later in the upper room the night he was betrayed. The Bible says in Philippians 2, you know the verses, that he took upon him the form of a servant. He was in fashion as a man, humbling himself and became obedient unto death. But they're not learning humility from him because they're too busy being distracted with their own conversations and their own interests disregarding him. So instead of being concerned about their very best friend being killed, having been delivered into the hands of sinners, they're concerned about themselves. That's why I say pride disregards Jesus Christ. He's, he turns to them and he says, hey guys, what were you arguing about when we were walking along the way there from along the shores of Galilee on the way to Capernaum? What is it that you were arguing about? Have you ever had an argument or a conversation and you thought it was off someone's radar and then all of a sudden you found out it was on their radar? Of course, nothing was off of Jesus' radar ever as the Son of God, uh, omniscient Son of God. And so he says, what were you arguing about? And they had nothing to say because they knew what they were arguing about and they did not want to admit it. Jesus is talking about his coming humiliation and they're talking about their exaltation. Not good. It's possible to get caught up in the trappings of ministry and miss the reason for ministry. The reason for ministry is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember that tug in my heart as a 10th and 11th grader to pursue gospel ministry because of the fact that Jesus had given his life for me and the most important thing I could give my life to is helping others know about him. And then and then I began that path of uh, trying to prepare for ministry and then go to Bible college and move to Lancaster and began the ministry. But I will just tell you, it's easy to get distracted by all of the things that are going on around you and not remember, if you're not careful, the reason you entered it. And pride causes us to disregard Jesus. You can't focus your attention on your own interests and on Jesus at the same time. You can't focus your attention on your preferences, your opinions, your convenience, your interests, your position, your, your plan, and remain zeroed in on who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he'd like to do for others by way of his saving grace. Sometimes the things we're most concerned about are the things that he is least concerned about because of pride. Pride causes us to disregard him. Sometimes the first thing on my mind is the last thing on his mind because it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about him and it's about getting his message to other people who need him and seeing his work of grace accomplished in the hearts and lives of those who have come to know him in places like pastoral ministry and Christian education and so forth for which you're preparing. 
when we find our satisfaction and our identity in areas that appeal to our pride, we aren't thinking of Jesus and we're revealing our pride. Uh, there's, a, there's part of all of us that wants to be noticed and wants to have position as these disciples did. These disciples were, because they possessed human nature like you and I do, they were excited about the fact that they had been among the few called. They were special. They were unique. They were next to Jesus. And they were right about who he was. They had, Peter had made his declaration, thou art the Christ. And uh, they knew what they were a part of was special. They knew it was the kingdom of God. They knew he was the Messiah. And they were rightly honored and overjoyed to be a part of this and close to him. But that can quickly morph into becoming more about you and me than it is about being about him. <clears throat> I remember a moment when my pride swelled in this room. I'd been here a few years in ministry, and it was harvest time. It was open house Sunday. In fact, we had open house Sunday in May back then. That's when they had it in the Bible was in May. But uh, we've since moved it. But uh, open house Sunday was in May back then. And, and it was a, a big day in the church, always the biggest day. I know you had open house Sunday two weeks ago. And one of my favorite days of the year, seeing so many people visit church and come to Christ. And we, we all worked so hard, of course. The first couple of years, I, I, I kind of had a way to help out in Open House Sunday, and Brother Furso kind of spearheaded Open House Sunday on the church staff. And he'd mobilize the church staff and the church members and the church soul winners and the college students and all that to knock on doors and invite friends and so forth, plan all the activities and the meal and the bounce houses and, and all the logistics of it. And then the next couple of years, uh, each year I seem to get more responsibility, which is often the case when you're new in the ministry. You're getting more responsibility as you, as you serve. And, and it got to be, and then a few years later, I was the one coordinating the open house and, and, and had the privilege of doing that for many, many years. But one of those years when I wasn't the official coordinator of open house, I just knew how much I did for it. We were in this service and it was a Sunday night in this room. It was a Sunday night and, and um, I was sitting down there and Pastor Chapel and Brother Furso and Brother Schmidt uh, and maybe even Brother Hauk was up here and... Um, they, Pastor Chapel got up and he gave the report about Open House Sunday. And I'm sitting down there going, man, what a blessing to be a part of this. You know, lots of people saved, thousands of people in church. Did I win the candy bar? Um, you know, lots of, lots of, uh, and, and one of the reasons I was so deeply grateful for what happened is I knew how that I had gone to the wall so hard. And, and I knew that for the first one I worked together, but to be honest, I knew that I did more work than him that particular year on Open House Sunday. I knew that I did a lot more, okay? Now, he would run the rallies and stuff, but I know he and I would meet every day, and we behind the scenes. Brother Furso is one of my best friends and person with whom I worked the most closely over my 18 years here. Well, on that particular Sunday night, I was sitting down here, and Brother Furso was sitting here, and, and Pastor said, what a great day. I'm just so grateful for it. All these people got saved and everything. And he said, let's all thank Brother Furso for coordinating this day. And everybody's clapping. There's thousands of people out here clapping for Brother Furso. And Brother Furso's like, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. you know? and, and I'm sitting down there going, yeah, great job, Brother Furso. You know, I'm really happy you were able to do all that work. And I'm thinking to myself, he's getting all the credit. And all he did was tell me, hey, Get all this stuff ready. I'm going to go, you know, tell the owners what to do. And I'm having to do all this stuff. And I'm staying late. And in that moment, I had, and I know you're disappointed. I hope you'll still listen to the rest of this message after knowing what a carnal person I am. But I'm sitting down there. And, and just in, as soon as I felt bad for myself, just as soon as I did, I sensed, maybe from the Holy Spirit or the, the, a conscience that's informed by the scriptures, I sensed, you know what? This is probably not a healthy thought that I'm having right now. This is probably not a thought produced by the Holy Spirit. This, and in fact, probably my willingness to work hard for Jesus without credit when someone else might get the credit is probably a prerequisite for being used of the Lord. And if I did this so that these people would clap for me, boy, am I a fool to have done it for the wrong reasons. And if I mind that he's being clapped for, even though I did all the work, how much pride must that reveal? And I just sensed that the Holy Spirit was saying to me, you need to get okay with this if you expect me to use you anymore going forward. And I, I, I actually thanked the Lord pretty quickly afterwards for, for, for having gone through that moment because I felt like it was an important 
gut check for what motivates me to serve the Lord with diligence and passion. And, it, and I had to figure out early in ministry that it wasn't going to be to get thanked or recognized or clapped for or praised. And it was, you probably are spiritual enough, you'd say, well, that's a no-brainer. Can we get this message moving along? For, but for me, that was, that was an important thing as a 20-something that I had to, had to figure out. Your ministry assignment, when you get deployed into ministry a few months from now or a few years from now, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And when we get filled with pride, it disregards Jesus Christ. The second problem with pride that I see in this passage is that it causes division. Proverbs 15 says that only by pride comes contention. But you, you see it played out, that proverb played out in this passage because they were disputing along the way. These guys who were a part of the same dream team are disputing. They're arguing with each other because of their thirst for positions in the kingdom. They were arguing over who was going to get which position in the kingdom. And pride will always cause division. Think of the contrast between the spirit of Jesus Christ on this day in his ministry and the spirit of the disciples. Think of the, think of the contrast between the two. Jesus is marching toward Calvary, knowing what's ahead of him, bearing the burden and the passion of the cross. There's a, a spirit of sacrifice and a purposeful going forward toward the cross in the heart and life of our Savior and a humility and a willing to be humiliated. And, and in the lives and the hearts of the disciples is a status-seeking, position-craving, self-serving, unbridled ambition that comes part and parcel with our human nature that must be crucified. Pride causes division. Pride is the great enemy of relationships. In a marriage, pride causes division. On a church staff, pride causes division. In a church congregation, pride causes division. In a dormitory, in a classroom, pride causes division. It threatens every good relationship that is cherished and that is used of the Lord for his purposes. Proverbs 28, 25. He that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. Pride causes division. So these disciples are different than one another. And rest assured, in the economy of God and in the body of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem upon his ascension, sure enough, he had a job for 11 of these 12 disciples to do. And he had roles for them to fulfill. And he had plans to use them that were great plans. And, and, and Peter may have been the one that preached at Pentecost. And, and uh, John may have been uh, the one who wrote the, uh, the book of Revelation. And, and uh, James may have been the pastor in Jerusalem. But, but all 11 of them had vital roles the book of Acts bears out. And some of their names appear more than others. But the point is that they, God had a role for them. And their roles were different. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that's the case in the, body, the local body of Christ. But because we're different, we tend to see things differently and view things differently and understand things differently and have disagreements with one another. You can see that with Barnabas and Paul and with uh, Peter and Paul in, in Galatians and in, in Acts 15. And you can see that this, this potential for being different causes this potential for division, which if it's not checked by the Spirit of God and crucified by the Spirit of God will cause division. A husband is having an argument with a wife and thinks he only wins if he gets his way. But he doesn't really understand that if he wins the argument, that's still a loss for him because the relationship, the quality of the relationship suffers. So it's, it's really a lose-lose proposition if he doesn't crucify that pride. And the same goes for you. You're going you're gonna to join a church staff or a school staff somewhere. Or you're going to become an assistant pastor like I did at age 21. Or you're going to uh, assume the leadership of a church. When I got to Howell three years ago, th uh, there were 36 people that voted to call me to be their pastor. And the church was averaging 70 folks or so. And uh, some of them had been in the church quite some time and some of them for a few years. And, and, and they just weren't interested always in you know, immediately and everything that I wanted to tell them. And, and I had to be patient and I had to, I, I couldn't just respond with pride, which would be my human tendency if I expected to have a relationship with them. And the Lord's blessed and 
the church has um, quadrupled since that time, and we're thankful for that, and the Lord's blessed. And, and I think part of that has to do with there was a mature group of people who had humility toward the new pastor, and there was a pastor that had learned during his 18 years in Lancaster that maybe sometimes you need to allow your pride to be crucified and interact with humility. They were focused on their interests, and it caused division. When you focus on your self-interest, it causes you not only to be opposed by God, 1 Peter 5, 5, but it also causes you to have division with those with whom you you're to be unified. One of the other neat little things that God did in my life those first couple of years was a confrontation between me and Brother Furso. And, um, I don't know if Pastor Chapel told him to say this to me or if he just felt led. He was the type that would say it just because he felt led. But uh, I had just been here a year or two, I think. And you might imagine this in the staff meetings at Lancaster Baptist or in the, in the small meetings with the leadership team or the pastoral staff. If, if you didn't do something well or properly or as you had been instructed or expected to do, you would, you would come to know about it, okay, in no uncertain terms. And sometimes you would be told, you know, you didn't do that correctly or, or uh, that was the dumbest idea I've ever heard or, you know, uh, what were you thinking? I got that one a few times in my first few years. And one of the things that happens when you're new and young in the ministry is you, you have to get okay with that. And, and Brother Furso pulled me aside one day in the hallway in the North Building where the college offices now, those were where our church offices were then. And, and he said, hey, listen. He said, let me help you with something. He said, when Pastor Chapel tells you you did something wrong or something like that, stop defending yourself. He said, you have something to say for everything he says when he's telling you what you did wrong. And you keep kind of like building your case to defend. Just shut up when you're backed into the corner and go, okay, I'll learn from that. Or something like that along those lines. And I was like, hmm, sounds like a good strategy. Uh, and I think... I think that light that came on that day, thanks to an older brother willing to tell me something that probably wasn't even easy for him to say, I think that helped me to have a good relationship with my pastor for the next 15 or 16 years. Because I learned that, you know what, that's how this works, is sometimes correction is needed and, and confrontation is needed, and, and, and we're not always going to get it exactly the same. And I learned that pride in Tim can cause division between his pastor and him, or he can just let that pride be crucified, and he can just uh, become teachable. I took a pastor who had been a pastor for, for many years and had a wonderful, fruitful ministry to the airport one time as a, uh, he had been here to speak in chapel like this or something, and, and I, I, I drove him to the airport, and I said, uh, I said, you've been in ministry for 30-some years, and you pastored a wonderful church, and I said, I've been in the ministry for a year. What kind of advice would you give me? He said, well, and he just immediately had a piece of advice for me. And he had had a large staff that worked for him at a, at a vibrant church. And he said, you know, let me give you one piece of advice. He said, when Pastor Chapel corrects you, and I'm thinking, I'm sensing a pattern here. Like, uh, did he tell you to say this? Um, and I'm, I'm sure that he did not. But he knows how ministry works, and he knows how staffs work, and he knows how assistant pastors are, and young guys who have a lot of energy and a lot of ideas are. And he said, when Pastor Chapel corrects you, because he's going to have to do that from time to time, appreciate it. And I'm like, can you repeat that? Because it sounded like you just said appreciate correction. And uh, he said, yeah. He said, when you are told that you did something wrong or didn't do it to, to, to the right uh, level of quality, just appreciate it and be thankful for it. Maybe even write him a note for it. I'm like, come again now, write a note, like a thank you note. Thank you for rebuking me. And Yeah, he said, that's, that's, you need to learn to appreciate that. And, and I'm thankful for those moments when I learned that pride can cause division or I can let that be crucified. If you're going to lead a congregation one day, and, and I, I, I believe and hope and trust that hundreds of you will, you're going to lead as an under-shepherd of congregation of people different than you. And sometimes pastors cut their legs out from under them, their own legs, by not being able to respond to people who see things differently than them or understand things differently than them or come from a different background than them because of pride. If you marry someone, which I hope you will, uh, and I believe for the vast majority of you it will probably be the, the plan of God for you, you're going to marry someone different than you. 
And, and if, you're, if you come onto a staff as a youth director or a choir director or a Christian school teacher, you're going to have a school administrator or a senior pastor or someone of this nature that is going to have maybe different experiences than you and different ideas than you. That's okay. That's a good thing. And pride will cause division. And the, the disciples needed to learn that so that the, the book of Acts could happen and they could stay unified as it did. So there are problems with pride. Pride disregards Christ. Pride causes division. And third, pride, we see in verses 34 through 37, misunderstands greatness. God defines greatness different than human pride defines greatness. Hopefully that's obvious from just a quick look at our society and culture and human history. But they disputed among themselves, verse 34, who should be the greatest. And so Jesus in verse 35, sits them down as if to say, oh, you want to be great? Okay, here's a child. What does a child have to do with greatness? And Jesus went on to explain that you can be great out in the world. You can be a great athlete and a great business person and a great political leader and a great community leader and a, 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 a great neighbor. You can be great in a lot of different ways in this world's economy, but to be great in the kingdom, which is what he was preparing them for, it's very different. It's sort of an upside-down, inside-out approach to what this world considers greatness. And he did want them to be great. But many people work all their lives because there's this God-designed instinct in us to build and, and dream and pursue and, and conquer and accomplish and many people can spend their whole lives trying to seek and obtain something that the world considers great or some misguided, misplaced, unbiblical ministry philosophy thinks is great, but that Jesus wouldn't consider great. And Thomas Merton put it this way, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And I believe there are folks in and out of ministry that have made that mistake. It's sad because the pride is keeping us from the honor that we really want. And the honor we really want is the honor that comes from God when we stand before him and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he that exalts himself, Luke 14, 11, is abased. In Jesus' economy, to be great involved humility and becoming good at serving. It involved authenticity, which is why the child was used in the example, and simplicity, not complex, status-seeking, strategizing, manipulating schemes like Jacob. It didn't, that's not greatness in the kingdom of God. Greatness is the heart and spirit and humility and simplicity and authenticity of a child. Let me give you a couple thoughts. Greatness according to man and greatness according to God. You don't need to write it all down, but... According to men, greatness is others serving you. According to God, greatness is you serving others. According to men, greatness is what you get. According to God, greatness is what you give. According to men, greatness is about the height of your position. But according to God, greatness is about the humility of your posture. According to men, greatness is the attention you get. And according to God, greatness is the attentiveness that you show him and then others. According to men, greatness is arriving at prominence. But according to God, greatness is abiding in Christ's presence. According to men, your agenda and your plans is what is great. But according to God, his agenda and his purposes are what is great. According to men, greatness is your strategy at work. According to God, greatness is God's providence at work. According to men... Greatness seeks recognition. According to God, greatness seeks to be faithful. Truly great people don't see tasks as being beneath them, assignments as being not good enough for them, and people as being unimportant to them. Humility is going to find sometimes the least desired position or task and claim it. When Ronald Reagan was in the hospital after his one of the assassination attempts on his life when he was shot. He was recovering there at the Naval Hospital, Walter Reed, and, and in a, for a brief moment, he was alone in the room. 
and a Secret Service agent walked into the room and said, what are you doing? He was out of bed on the floor with a towel, alone in the room, Ronald Reagan. And he said, what are you doing? He said, well, he said the nurse spilled some water uh, from the pitcher that they give you the cups of water in, and I didn't want her to get in trouble. And there's a spirit there that you can't manufacture and you can't strategize that just says, I'm going to serve and I'm going to be a servant. He's setting up this child as an example. Children are not ladder climbers or slick or suave strategizers. They're not perfect, but they're authentic. They're real. They say what they mean and mean what they say. They're not posturing and strategizing with situations or with people. My son Grant was at a school function. Grant's in second grade, and he's a little goofball. And uh, he's our third born. Our, uh, we have two daughters, 19 and 17, and we have Grant, who's eight, and he's adopted, and Monroe, who's four, and she's adopted. All four of them were born in Southern California. Three of them were born in Lancaster, and Grant was born in Bakersfield. We, we heard that Grant's birth mother was in labor, and Bakersfield, 100 miles from here, we got to the hospital in one hour. So uh, don't tell your uh, police officer friends. But, um, and, and, and we got to be there for his delivery. But uh, we brought him home from the hospital in Bakersfield, and he's, he's, a, he's my only son. He's a special little guy, and he's a lot of fun. And he was at school several months ago, and they had a police officer talking to the class. And the police officer asked, do you have any questions? And Grant, Grant raised his hand, and he says, I see police officers all the time. He said, Okay. And he said, the other day we were visiting my grandpa at the hospital and we got there and, and we pulled up to the doors of the hospital and there was a police car right in front of the hospital. He said, now, my sister Monroe, she has a car seat. It's gray and it's green. And um, we didn't have the car seat with us on that day. So when we pulled up and we saw the police car, Monroe had to hide like this. <laughs> and the police officer was like, oh, that's nice. Is your dad here, young man? And... Uh, and he's like, no, he's not here at school today. And I was thankful that I wasn't. But uh, in my defense, Grant's grandmother, my mother, was the one driving the car. So I'm, I'm off the hook. But um, he just doesn't think about would this be something that this police officer wants to hear or that would impress this police officer or might it get my dad arrested. He's just going to share what's on his mind with the police officer, just kind of a, a pure heart. You should not be childish in ministry but you should possess a childlike spirit of humility and simplicity that children so obviously embody. Because pride misunderstands greatness. So pride disregards Christ. Pride causes division. Pride misunderstands greatness. And as the passage continues that we read, pride misjudges others. In verse 38, <laughs> I think the apostles are doing something that I've done before. They know that they just messed things up, and now they're still opening their mouths trying to fix things. And so I, I really think, if I think of human nature, I think what motivated John in this verse to say this in verse 38 was that he's like, I think we just messed up. Because we were talking about greatness, and he was talking about being killed or something. So I don't think we were supposed to be talking about our great positions in the kingdom. And I think he just showed us a child to say that we were on the wrong track. I think I could impress him by showing him our loyalty. And I think I should open my mouth up again, which is usually not the right thing. And so John says, Master, you'd be proud of us. That's kind of between the lines here. We saw someone, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. And he expected Jesus to say, thank you, John, for standing up for righteousness. But that's not what Jesus told him. He said, forbid him not. John was out of bounds here. John is setting himself up, and the other disciples showed that they were willing to do this as well. He was setting himself up as the judge and jury, misjudging other people, measuring other people by standards and metrics that are unscriptural and unbiblical, and Jesus didn't ask them to measure them by. I'm not talking about making excuses for false teaching or... Um, ungodliness, but what I'm talking about is the fact that there are a lot of people in this world and in this student body and in your ministry service in the coming years that are a little different than you, and you need to know what you believe and why you believe it and find the right position, and that's a big part of being in Bible college is knowing 
why you believe what you believe and why you do what you do, and it's all Bible-based and Bible-principled, and, and, and you're formulating that, and, and, and West Coast Baptist College, like few other places, can give you a wonderfully biblical and, and uh, fruitful and faithful foundation for ministry and, and identifying positions and being very specific, and, and that's a good thing, and we need to do that. We, we need to be students of the Word and know what we believe, and then we need to come back from having been students of the Word, and we need to operate based on what we've been taught and what's in our heritage and what we've received and what we've come to embrace and not set ourselves up as the police to identify and chase down everyone else who may be a little different than us. And that's going to happen in the dormitory and that's going to happen in your ministry and that's going to happen in your congregation that you serve and it's going to happen outside of that with friends. You're going to have alumni, fellow alumni who are different than you and things of this nature and, and that's okay. In Romans 14, Paul said, who are you? Who are you that judges another man's servant? Why dost thou judge thy brother? Verse 10. Why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm just saying that this spirit that existed wasn't the right spirit because it was rooted in pride. And John was saying, hey, Jesus, we really told them to stop it because we know that they're not part of our group. And it's liberating when you discover, when you're humble enough to discover, that in order for you to be right, that doesn't have to mean that everybody else is wrong. And God didn't set you up as the judge. We're all going to stand before Jesus Christ as individuals. And there's not going to be a prize for who told the most people off or who corrected the most people. The, the Bible says here that we're each going to stand before that judgment seat of Christ. And we better be busy, I better be busy, preparing myself for that judgment seat, making sure that I know that I'm doing what God's called me to do, and I'm following the scriptural teachings of the Word of God, and from my training, and from what I've received, and from my heritage, and from my understanding of the Scripture, and from the leadership of the Holy Spirit, from the grace of God and leadership of God at work in my life, and then allow myself, having embraced these things and being passionate about these things, allowing myself to not, that em let, that, not let that embracing and that passion cause me to be lifted up in pride, and begin to judge others. In the parallel passage in Luke 9, Jesus said to John, you don't know what spirit this is of. In other words, you're, this, this rebuking of others and this wanting to call down fire on people who weren't accepting of us, this is not from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that there's differences. And if you keep going on in the passage here in verse 41... Jesus said, um, first in verse 40, he said, if they're not against us, they're, they're on our part. Or Luke 9 says, they're for us. And in verse 41, he says, for whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ. Verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. In other words, don't judge people for not being a part of our group. And, and don't judge the size of what someone else is doing. How foolish to, to think that we could critique or assess the size of what's important in someone else's life or even in our own lives. Whatever you're called to do and whatever others are called to do, if it's truly a product of the Lord's leadership and guidance and placing us in the body of Christ, serving where we should be serving in the function that we should be serving, whether it seems big or small to us, if it combines to advance the purposes of our Savior and glorify his name to the ends of the earth, then it's, it's certainly something to be grateful for and that Jesus says in verse 41, will be rewarded. So I say that in part to make sure that we know that we're not supposed to be everybody else's judge, but I also say it in part so that we know that whatever God calls us to do and wherever God leads us and whatever God shows us to do is okay to embrace with respect to whether it's as big as we thought it would be or as unique as we thought it would be or as special as we thought it would be or in the geographical location as we thought it would be in. Frankly, um, I found a lot of joy in being a part of the ministry here. And for 18 and a half years, I just delighted to be involved in every bit of it. And, I, and I, I rejoiced over it. And I found, frankly, probably a good bit of identity with it. And I, I, I could kind of say, well, I'm, I know I'm important because I'm connected to an important ministry or something like that. You know, and when, we, when we get into these moments of self-assessment and human nature, pride, led assessment and it was good for me to have the Lord lead me to a place a couple thousand miles from here and serve as a pastor in a place that no one's heard of 
and that no one's going to conferences at, and that no one is, you know, thinking is the, 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 the next neat thing because it was an opportunity to let God lead and, and let God decide. And, and I think our church's potential is unlimited and we've seen a lot of growth the last few years and I think we'll see more God willing in the days ahead and by the grace of God. But the fact is, it's not, the Lord doesn't measure it all like sometimes we think it's measured. And I remember being in Bible college. I, I was kind of, I was uh, so bitten by the bug of, the, the big preachers, and, 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 and they were great, and they are great. And, and I loved conferences, and I loved preaching, and I loved it all. And, and there was a part of me, though, that loved the platform of it and the volume of it and the, the size of the crowds of it. And I needed to get to the place, and coming to Lancaster really helped me with that because I was 21 years old. No one knew me. No one was impressed by me. And, and basically it was like, okay, show up for work and get to work. And we'll give you credit in a few years maybe. <laughs> and... It was a situation where that pride that came so natural to me was, was, um, was crucified. And, and still now to this day, that tendency swells in me, and I have to make sure that I ask the Lord to crucify it. I like what Helen Keller said when she said, I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it is my chief duty to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble. And a lot of times that's what the day-in and day-out ministry is like. The best way to deal with pride, we need to deal with it. The best way to deal with it is just to confess it. There's something very healthy spiritually in the design and economy of God theologically that we, we acknowledge our sin and say the same thing about our sin and confess our sin and say, Lord, I confess to you that I, I'm filled with pride. The, deal, the way to deal with it is to confess it and then to make sure that we're walking a sincere walk with God because when you're alone, with your Bible and your journal and your prayer list and no one knows it and no one cares and you're just investing time in your closet, so to speak, in your relationship with God, you know who you are and you know who he is in that time. And so I think if you want to deal with pride, it's, it's you confess it and maybe you have an opportunity to do that this morning and uh, you walk with the Lord privately and personally and then you determine to embrace humble behaviors. You determine to embrace behaviors that sync with the biblical message of humility. And that's sometimes when you go back to the dorm or sometimes when you go to your work this afternoon off campus or sometimes when you, move in, when you visit your parents at home or deal with your siblings or your spouse, either now or someday soon, embracing humble behaviors. So I trust that you have looked in this scene and you've identified that when we're filled with pride, it disregards Jesus. It causes problems and division with each other. It causes us to misunderstand what greatness truly is, and it causes us sometimes to misjudge other people. So let's set that aside. Let's confess our pride to the Lord. Let's walk humbly with the Lord, and let's embrace humble behaviors toward one another as we follow the Lord together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for creating us and in your image, giving us your word. And in many cases, for, for so many of us in this room, you've called us to vocational ministry, full-time ministry. What a privilege, what a joy, what an opportunity to invest our lives in advancing your glory and advancing your kingdom. We want to give our lives to it, and I believe pride will threaten our ability to do that. So I pray you'd help us to deal with it now. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if God's spoken to your heart about pride and you want to ask him to help you to walk in humility and crucify that thing that you have inside of you that's similar to what I had inside of me and still do and the disciples had inside of them and still do, why don't you come to the altar or kneel at your seat and seek the Lord concerning that as the piano plays.